Welcome and thank you for listening to this podcast from Core to App Independent Medical Education. In this episode, you will learn more about the exciting updates from the ESCO-GI Conference 2023, which took place in San Francisco. ESCO-GI is the key conference for updates on potentially clinically changing practices in the field of GI cancers. Expert oncologist Professor Andrea Sartore Bianchi and Professor Shubham Pant discuss key data on lower GI cancer. This podcast is an initiative of core to ed and developed by GI Connect, a group of international experts working in the field of GI oncology. The podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Bayer. The views expressed are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organizations or the rest of the GI Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the core to ed website. Hello and welcome to this podcast covering highlights of lower GI from the 2023 ESCO Gastrointestinal Symposium in San Francisco. My name is Andrea Sartore Bianchi. I'm a medical oncologist at Niguarda Cancer Center in Milano and associate professor at the University of Milano. And for this podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Shubham Pant. Uh, Shubham, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, Andrea, thank you so much. Uh, This is such a pleasure to be on with the podcast with you to discuss the latest and the greatest in ASCO GI 2023. I'm Shubham Pant. I'm a professor of medical oncology in the Department of GI Medical Oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Thanks to you, uh, Shubham. So I think we can start uh, commenting on most relevant uh, news from the ESCO GI by touching on the Sunlight Trial. Why is that? Because the presentation actually of this trial was eagerly awaited since, since we had the, the press release last December announcing the positive results. But I think yet it was important to understand the magnitude of the benefit observed. Uh, this is a study that was presented by Joseph Tabernero and involved 492, I think, metastatic rectal cancer patients that were treated after two lines of standard treatment to either trifluorine tipiracin alone or in combination with bevacizumab. So a phase three trial com- comparing these two strategies. And the end point was overall survival and also uh, secondary uh, progression-free survival. So we knew and we saw this result. The study was indeed positive, uh, meeting the primary endpoint. Uh, there was a, an improved median overall survival with the combination of BEVA and uh, trifluidine tipiracil. Also, I think that uh, it was nice to see those curves of, of survival nicely separating early and, and staying well separate throughout the, the treatment and follow-up. Also, the subgroup analysis uh, was demonstrating a, a benefit you know, from also group. And in, in particular, there were also patients who had not been previously treated with bevacizumab. And here there was a kind of a greater benefit uh, with the addition of uh, bevacizumab to uh, TAS-102. But we know actually that this is not the case because most of our patients in clinical practice uh, do receive bevacizumab in an earlier line. Overall, uh, three-quarters of the patient actually were treated uh, with previous bevacizumab. So uh, just to have an idea and to translate data in clinical practice. Also, I think it was important and it was interesting to know that uh, most of the patients were RAS mutated. I think I like the, the unmet need of this patient in uh, getting an, an effect treatment because in this trial, as high as 70% of patients did display a RAS mutation. 
And as far as uh, response rate is concerned, uh, this was low, uh, uh, but this was expected. We know that uh, these agents are more likely to control and slow down tumor progression rather than achieving a shrinkage. So I think that looking at the overall uh, results of the sunlight, this is clearly indicated that this was noted in the Congress that we have a new standard uh, for third light treatment. And the good thing is that it's together with other approved drugs in this setting, for example, regorafenib. And as far as TAS-102 is concerned, now we know that the combination should be preferred to monotherapy uh, when feasible for, for that specific uh, treatment. So really, I think that this trial is in the context of an enrichment of the continuum of care of patients with metastatic colorectal cancer. And I don't know, uh, Shubhan, if you have any thought about this trial or, or you agree with me on, on these points. Yeah, uh, Andrea, thank you so much uh, for that eloquent uh, kind of summary of the trial. I always agree with you on most of the things, so <laughs> I agree with you here. But just to kind of summarize a few key points of this trial, like you said, first of all, we were giving the drug in the third line setting, you know, after the first and the second line, mostly Folfox, Folfiri, or a combination of them. And so I think this was this was important because we really saw very interesting curves which were progression-free survival and overall survival. Obviously, like with everything, we have to take it with a pinch of salt, though I think there was robust benefit, is obviously most of our patients, like you said, do get prior bevacizumab. So where does that fit in? But still, even if you continue the bevacizumab, they really do have that benefit that we see because the benefit was pretty significant that we saw. The second thing is obviously the adverse events. Again, we saw just like bevacizumab, hypertension, some neutropenia uh, was a little bit elevated in the combination. I do think though for third line, you know, we use the drug by itself, but I think the new standard of care, as you correctly said, would be the combination. If you choose to use this drug, you would probably tend to use it now if patients can tolerate the AEs in combination rather than single agent, because this is, uh, this is an improvement. The other drugs in this space, you know, rigorafenib, again, a tough drug to give at the original 160 milligrams. Obviously, we dose adjust uh, that drug. So where does that stand in, you know, because this was not compared against rigorafenib. Does it improve compared to rigorafenib? As we saw in the Fresco 2 trial, right, which was in uh, ESMO last year. Now, where does it stand compared to frequentinib? But I think uh, the take-home message for our listeners for this trial would be that Positive results, significant improvement in overall survival and progression-free survival, unmet need for our RAS mutant patients, like you said, you know, 70% were RAS mutant. And even if they've been prior treated with bevacizumab, this could be an option depending on the toxicities. Now, the other agents which are coming in the third line setting, obviously, they'll have to be a consideration where does this fit in with the other agents. But I think if we were using this before, this trifluridine combination, if we were using this before, now we would think about using it with map. So like I said, I, I completely agree with you there, Andrea. Great, Shubham. So maybe you want to, to take some points on, on other presentations? Yeah, so a lot of exciting presentations uh, that we saw at ASCO-GL. This was after some time that we saw uh, some really great data, positive data, and some really thought-provoking data coming out of this Congress. So coming to the thought-provoking data, is what we've discussed uh, ad nauseum and what we keep on discussing is where does CTDNA fit in the whole colorectal cancer and other GM malignancies paradigm. So I'm going to discuss the kinetics of post-operative circulating free DNA and impact of minimal residual detection rates in patients with resected stage 1 to 3 colorectal cancer. And this was an important kind of uh, analysis 
uh, was a retrospective analysis. Uh, you know, 16,000 patients plus with stage one to three colorectal cancer were analyzed. And one of the important points is when do we really measure the ctDNA for it to have some impact? So as you and I know, your ctDNA positivity anytime after your resection, you almost have 100% specificity. All these patients almost relapse. What we really don't know is what do we do with the data? You know, do we get experimental treatment? Do we give them more chemotherapy? So it's a little bit more challenging. But to put in context for our listeners, this data was done in patients who were resected. And it also looked at if CFDNA, you know, like circulating free DNA, it's just the DNA which is released from dead cells versus circulating tumor DNA is the correlation. And when you should really look at the circulating tumor DNA after resection. So I think what this data showed was that you can measure the circulating tumor DNA anytime two weeks after the surgery. It gets, you know, there's a validation there that after two weeks after the surgery, if your circulating tumor DNA is negative, you have a high chance of cancer not coming back. If your ctDNA is positive, then you have a high chance of the cancer coming back. Now, the question really is, if you're positive, your outcomes are worse than if you're negative. Next question, obviously, which is being addressed in multiple trials in the US and in Europe, is you know how do we improve the outcomes of these patients who are circulating tumor DNA positive? So I think what I took back from this presentation was that after two weeks of surgery, we can use a circulating tumor DNA and feel confident that will impact the future course of relapse or prognosis in these patients. But I think we just need a lot more perspective data to see how we can improve, really improve the outcomes of these patients. So I'm going to Punt it back to you, Andrea, about what you thought of these results and where do you think this whole field is headed? You know, that's the, that's, as they say, the million dollar question. Right, Shubhan, you, you already, I think, touch, greatly touched on the most relevant aspect of this aspect. It seems to be kind of technical question asked by, by authors, but uh, indeed, I think it, it was important because as, you, as you're saying, we have many ongoing trials and uh, the timing the draw for, for blood, for assessing ctDNA can matter. Why is that? Because actually the DNA, the, the half-fiber DNA is very short. So you are, you, you are supposed not to have any trace of, of ctDNA just a few hours after surgery. But CFDNA, so the total DNA can be a confounding factor. And especially under stress like surgery, you have more ctDNA. So these data are clearly indicating that the first week is not optimal. You want to wait at least at the second week. Then from the second week on until the, the eighth week, you are should be fine. And uh, luckily, uh, this is indeed the window that is adopted by many of the ongoing trial that, that you mentioned. And from this point of view, I really think that we are living exciting times because this biomarker is here to stay. And actually in, in 2022, we had the first data from the dynamic trial in phase two. So this is really historically the first uh, phase three trial, and we have some answer in stage two that you can use this approach. But we know that there are many other trials also in stage three. And this is, if you think, is, is even more interesting, assessing whether we can guide our treatment or uh, giving or not giving or escalating treatment according to CDNA. We are running in, in Italy the Pegasus trial, for example, and this, I think it's interesting, is a proof of concept because we have also the option of what to do if the CDNA stay positive after Fall Fox. So uh, here you have another interesting concept of switching uh, to another adjuvant strategy like Fall Fury based only on micrometastatic disease. So 
really exciting times. This is, is something that technology brought to us and, and it will be up to good clinical trials that are really running now this year and next year probably to answer and to, to give an, a, a clinical utility in everyday practice. What I found fascinating about this field is, Andrea, that you can use this to either de-escalate care, we're showing more and more of that so that people don't get the neuropathy and in whom can you really de-escalate the care, decrease the toxicity from the adjuvant therapy that we give. Now, the escalating care, that's, I think, where it's going to be more challenging. Like the Pegasus trial and everything, I think, will be great in telling us that. That does it delay, just delay recurrence if you give something or does it truly lead to that cure, right? That, that what we're leading to for patients or it just gives them stress saying, I'm CTDNA positive, I'm going to relapse sometime. There's really, you know, nothing you know, we can do about it, right? Right. We need, we need these answers soon. And I'm really optimistic that this tool will be in, in clinical practice very soon because these trials are, are really recruiting well. I love your optimism, Andrea. So I'm going to give it back to you to discuss the next abstract. <laughs> Right. Thank you. And I, I thought it was interesting to touch uh, now on another study that was presented, that the study with uh, butensilimab and balstilimab. Uh, this is a phase 1A, 1B study with these two immune checkpoint inhibitors in metastatic rectal cancers. Now, what is interesting is that here investigators look at MSS tumors. And we know uh, indeed very well that the, the immune checkpoint blockade is strikingly effective in MSI high tumors, but studies available are really clearly indicated that in, in MSS tumor, you have very disappointing results. Uh, and, and we know that this is the, the vast majority of our patient, 95% in, in the metastatic setting. So now it seems that there is something with this combination that is changing the state of things. And because... Uh, why is that? It can be possibly related to the mechanism of action of one of the two monoclonal antibodies, possibly, that is botensilimab, because actually this botensilimab that is used together with balstilimab might be advantageous because it seems that it can prime better T-cells, enhancing activation and memory formation. And also there is this FC-enhanced fragment that possibly also can promote the depletion of intratumoral Treg, and we know that Treg are actually kind of nasty in in, uh, in precluding response to MSS tumors. So now here in this trial, we have this 23% overall response rate, and, and this is way more than expected in MSS tumors. And uh, on top of this, the, there was also a lot of control of disease, so uh, more than 50% of, of stable disease. So it's not only tumor shrinkage, but it's also to, uh, controlling tumor growth. So I think really these results are interesting. And in terms of reasoning on data, uh, we cannot mention the difference that investigators saw quite consistently over time in, in terms of in, uh, liver involvement. So it turns out that uh, if you have active liver metastasis, you don't have a response. So all that 23% was achieved in, in patients without active liver metastasis. And what is, I think, very interesting is that we don't know. We don't know why. So there is a biology possibly underlying this, but we have to, to investigate more and, and have more insight why is that. But this seems to be consistently observed in this trial, but also in, in other trials. So as an overall picture, I think that this combination can have a role. The results should be confirmed, but can have a future also in this tough setting for immune therapy of MSS tumor, possibly in only liver, so-called liver-excluded patient without liver involvement. Shubham, what's your take on this data? Lots of thoughts on this. So first, uh, I wish they would make antibodies that we can pronounce a little bit better. So I'm just going to call it BOS uh, or BOTEN, uh, you know, 
But again, you know, what you're saying is very relevant. So I cannot tell you how many negative, and you know this, how many negative phase one trials we've run in combining one checkpoint inhibitors with something else in microsatellite stable called rectal cancer. And we've had multiple tumor microenvironment agents, agents which are decreasing Tregs, T-regulatory cells that we need lower, you know, give it the immune desert microenvironment that we call it. So this was really exciting. I think so. I think it was interesting. and But I think this is really exciting that we really saw these results in these patients with MSS colorectal cancer. I think the caveats you mentioned, you know, as they say, the devil is in the details, right? So the caveats that you really mentioned were, first of all, these were patients who did not have liver metastases. But I think that's very interesting. You know, we, they, they probably gives a different tumor biology. There's some preclinical data on if you have liver metastases, maybe it enhances the Tregs and does not make the drug more effective. So I think really, I would love to see the next steps in this drug, right? The thoughtful drug development, learning from the phase one, taking it all the way to phase three, and which could be, you know, as you know, quite a few patients do have not liver metastases. So I think there is a patient population there. The second thing is, it's interesting to see both checkpoint inhibitors, uh, but one which is a CTLF4 inhibitor because of the different construct maybe is, is active in this setting. But the third one that I would like to point out is I think this agent is very active. And we know that from the colitis, you had about 20% of patients with grade three colitis. And as you and I know, that gives a significant side effect. So I think we have to really look at how the colitis can be controlled, maybe with those adjustments versus the efficacy. So interested and excited to see the next steps in the story of combining these agents, because we really do need something for MSS colorectal. That's a high unmet need, as you know. Thank you, Shubham. And now, do you want to touch on, on some more data? Sure. Going from uh, metastatic or advanced to uh, localized rectal cancer. So I'm going to discuss as our last abstract, the long-term results from energy G1002, which is, was a phase two trial. It was a platform trial for TNT, total neoadjuvant therapy, in locally advanced rectal cancer. So essentially what the authors tried to do was create a platform design so we can really add on agents to the existing standard of care. So the existing standard of care, as you know, with high risk locally advanced rectal cancer is chemo, maybe followed by long course chemo radiation, followed by surgery. So what they did was they used that backbone of using Folfox, eight doses of Folfox, followed by long course uh, radiation and capecitabine, followed by surgery. But the other arm was combining Velaparib, which was considered as a PARP inhibitor. I'm going to call it a PARPish inhibitor or non-PARP inhibitor now. But when the study was designed, obviously, this was meant to enhance the radiation-induced synthetic lethality that, that was shown in smaller studies, right? That this can potentially, and preclinical models, that this can potentially do that. The second one was to combine the capecitabine and the radiation with pembrolizumab. And the scientific thought was that radiation can really enhance the anti-tumor immunogenicity, reduce the new antigens, change the cold tumor to a hot tumor maybe, and then utilize that to bring in the checkpoint inhibitor to improve the outcomes. It was a great effort by the group and by the authors and by the cooperative group. The main take-home point from this was that uh, neither velaparib nor pembrolizumab significantly improved the shortcoming outcomes in unselected patients when compared to TNT. And what they really were looking for was this new adjuvant rectal score, NAR, was the primary endpoint. So really did not change that. They also looked at pathology, uh, path CR, complete CR rates, overall survival and disease-free survival. Interestingly, you know, pembrolizumab did improve the three-year-old overall survival, but really did not have a, a significant improvement in uh, 
you know, in the neoadjuvant rectal score or disease-free survival. So interesting, but I really don't know exactly what to do with that data. I think I agree with the authors when they presented it that this trial at least gives us some idea of benchmarking for future locally advanced rectal trials. So it gives us some benchmarks of survival outcomes in these trials. And then we'll see what the subgroup analysis says. So interesting data, but I think just it's it's more of that it'll use it for benchmarking of final LAR for locally advanced rectal cancer trials rather than really change our standard of care currently. So I don't think it's, it really changes the standard of care, just provides some more interesting data. What do you think about it, Andrea? Yes, Shubhan, I think you really described all the strengths and the weakness of this approach. And, and if you think about it, historically, it's such a difficult setting, the preoperatory treatment of rectal cancer. If you remember also those big trials with negative data by adding oxaliplatin during the radiation. Therefore, there is kind of a, of a balance that you have to put in place in, in, and total new adjuvant at the end is the mainstay now, but it's chemo. If you try to add uh, something different of a target treatment or immune therapy, we saw that it's it, it's difficult. Maybe because we lack biomarker to select, and this is possibly really the case for PARP inhibitor or for all agents working on DDR, uh, because here uh, we are really in collector cancer. We don't have so far uh, a good biomarker for using Olaparib or, or other uh, PARP inhibitors, but we know that DDR is important in, in this tumor type, but it's so complex that, that you need to have a more than one biomarker probably. So I really agree with you. As far as the outcome is concerned, given that it, it is pembrolizumab, so given that it is an immune checkpoint inhibitor, having that prolongation uh, later on in overall survival uh, it can be difficult to interpret, but when you deal with immune therapy, there, there might be something because we know that the earlier you give the, the, the immune therapy, maybe the better you can have in terms of results, even with few uh, administration and on the long course. But this is something that possibly we will see with other trials and also with, with a longer follow-up. And Andrew, one of the things is, you know, how many of them were MSI high, right? So I didn't really see that. But the question is, if you have 10% MSI high, they could have pushed that survival forward as we know from multiple trials now that we probably just need to use a checkpoint in these patients and they get uh, like a great response. So Right. Maybe it's few patients that are more than enough for, for having a, that, that prolonged advantage. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, it was great discussing these uh, articles with you, Andrea. Any final words? I think really we, we discussed on the apps are most relevant in, in the colorectal cancer space. Of course, we have to say that there were many other interesting data, not only in colorectal, but really interesting it was to see also other tumor type, for example, in a high GI location and biliary hepatocarcinoma. So it was a great Congress. Uh, and I think that we really had a, a discussion of the, at least of the most relevant uh, presentation for colorectal. So I would like to, to thank all listeners for, for their attention. Thanks also for uh, Shuban, of course, for, for this great discussion. Thank you, Andrew. We hope you also found this podcast informative and enjoyable. If you like this episode, you should look out on the Courtyard channel for more. In particular, we will have another episode with an update for you from ESCO GI focusing on upper GI cancer from Dr. Natalia Uroa and Dr. Eva Doten. Make sure to listen to that episode too. Also, don't forget to rate this episode and share our podcast on social media or with your colleagues. If you want to know more about the studies discussed, 
please know that you can download the summary slides on the Courtulet website. Thank you for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Courtuet Independent Medical Education. Please visit courtuet.com for more information.